Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Esther. Esther chapter 9. This morning we're going to be studying, beginning in verse 23, to the end of the book. So Esther 9, beginning in verse 23. The author of the book writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. And therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. When Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter, about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we do pray now that you would be glorified in the teaching of it. Please give the Holy Spirit to do far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. Bring the truth of your word, the truth of Esther, and what it's meant to teach us with full power and grace upon our hearts. And to make us a people who are faithful to the end. 
with full confidence that you also will be faithful to us, that you will bring us to everlasting glory, to the victory of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So giving birth is a wildly joyful experience in the end. The process, in many cases, however, is anything but. It's full of travail. Even the Son of God affirms this in John chapter 16. So moms and future moms, aren't you glad that the Son of God can identify? Right? He's got your back in sleepless nights and morning sickness and body shifting and mood swings and contractions and labor pains. And then, of course, there is the end. It's awesome. And it's awfully trying. You've grown a human in your body. You ever think about that? A human in your body that's always had an exit strategy from your body. And just think, that most of you who have had babies have done so by the helps of modern medicines, technologies, and hospitals. And just imagine Mary's trouble. Imagine her trial. Imagine her travail. She didn't have an inn to stay in, but the Son of God, like he was, he was coming out. Now, why start there? Just to say what Jesus further says in John 16, that once the baby is delivered, the anguish vanishes and joy takes its place. All kinds of things were troublesome along the way. All kinds of things were painful. All kinds of things could have gone wrong, but there was delivery and with it joy and peace and a party, eventually, to celebrate the occasion with your people a child was born. There was an addition to the family. It's not dissimilar from the idea of deliverance. And on the whole, that's what we've seen in Esther. We've seen God's people pained, and we have seen them imperiled, but we have seen them ultimately delivered. And now, given this, this joy that they have, this peace that they have, there's to be a, a regularly scheduled party to commemorate it with all their people, which, as we'll see, is instructive for us. We are, are not dissimilar from them, at least by analogy, that is. We are a, a people who have been divinely conceived. We're a people who have been born again. And we are a people who, in a word, have been delivered. It cost Jesus his life to say nothing of our hells. But while we have been delivered, we also know there is more to it. There's, there's more to come, and that until then, we will be pained and we will be imperiled. However, ultimately, we will be delivered. And Esther is a preview then of how we can expect the unseen God to turn all things for our good in the end. It's been a look into the workings of what we call providence. How in some invisible, ineffable, irreproachable way, God governs all creatures, actions, and situations so as to move history toward His 
eternal goal. Not by the miraculous necessarily, but by the ordinary activities of human life in this fallen universe. And how, by providence then, God is continuously working to fulfill His promises for His glory to all who are in Jesus Christ. As one put it, quote, because of our sin, we live in the exile of history. In a world where God is unseen. Wasn't always the case. We should expect only death from it. But we've seen the ultimate reversal of expected ends in the cross of Christ. By grace, God has guaranteed Christians, believers in Christ, life in the face of certain death. The great paradox of Esther is that God is then omnipotently present for us even where He is most conspicuously absent. So, let's come to see and respond to it once more by first recounting redemption and the God behind it, beginning in verse 23. Mordecai, recall, has written a letter communicating good news of great joy to God's people and how that then needed some worshipful outlet in their lives and in their local communities. We're talking about Purim, if you remember from the last week or two. And then entering into our text then, we find the victors. We find the delivered, receiving Mordecai's injunction to celebrate what amounts to sovereign grace into the fabric of their worship. The theme here of sovereign grace is is hardly new. You just have to go back to the book of Exodus, right? It's hardly new. Still, the occasion here is new. And the author thinks it fitting to to summarily recount it one more time for us on the way out of the book. And as he does, we're to be reminded of at least a couple things. We're told again how Haman the Agagite, this typical enemy of God's people and promise, had plotted to destroy one and then the other, And that in doing so, he cast purr. He cast lots. He left the date of their death to the fate of his gods. But that by the time he came to the king, confident of victory, remember, his sin had found him out. And then his sin took him out. And we're to be reminded. We're to be reminded. Friend, if you're an enemy of God and Christ and his people, I want you to listen intently now. Your everlasting state depends on it. Your love of sin and rejection of the truth is a plot against God that is ultimately doomed to fail. You're you're setting up your own fall. The trap you set is set for you. You're, You're only plotting your own hell. Mighty Haman had it all mapped out, but it led him to death on the gallows that he made for another person. And he might have been spared. He might have been spared, but he waited too late. He made no opportunity to repent. I mean, he cried, right? He cried, he wept, and he he begged for mercy, but he just didn't do it over his sins. He loved himself to death. And so my, my plea with you this morning is not to follow in Haman's footsteps. It's to turn from your sins 
And then it's to trust in Jesus. And then it's to begin to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. It's to walk after him. You see, the fact is, every one of us, every single one of us, once walked in the footsteps of death and condemnation. We all used to follow the prince of the power of the air. The devil, Paul says in Ephesians 2, was our discipler. Until, Ephesians 2, 4, God, rich in mercy, bought us out of that prison by applying the blood of Christ to our lives. In sovereign grace, He redeemed us. And just so, dear friend, there is grace to save you this very hour. Don't wait until it's too late. Place your faith in Jesus. And while we're on it, let's just all see the shadow of the cross here. How in the end, a man hung upon a contraption of wood signaled the victory of God on behalf of His people. More, it was not any man, but their arch enemy who was destroyed on that tree of death. We really should not have to squint to see the substance of this that is the wonder of the cross of Christ where a sinless man was hung as the worst of criminals to a sinful mankind. Right there on that contraption of wood, the Lamb of God became us. The Lamb of God became legion. The Lamb of God became the worst of sinners, all of us in one, and was slain by us, and also at the same time crushed by God. And what I'm saying is, that was His victory. And it was our victory. There in the death of Christ, sin and death and hell and Satan were doomed. But we who believe were saved. We were delivered. We were redeemed. And how good it is then to recount and rehearse this redemption together. In Esther, that's what Purim is all about. For us, in an ordered way, that's what this time is all about. It is good for us to gather here and as often as we do, be reminded of who we once were and what God has done to save us and make us his own. This is what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2. Do you remember this? He says, you were dead in your sin. We were walking in sin. We were following the world once upon a time. We were following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, and the depravity of our flesh, and a natural kind of disobedience that identified us as children of what? Wrath. But God, he says, verse 4, chapter 2, rich in mercy, loved us even when we did not love Him. We love sin. So that He raised us from that death, united us to Him who lives, and in some saved us by His grace. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something that's worth celebrating right now? Indeed, may God have all the glory. He is behind it all. I don't know if you noticed it, but um, in keeping really with the author's genius, in a book that never names God, Esther, he omits things in this recounting that are ironically meant to draw our attention to them. 
He skips over Mordecai's stand, and he skips over the Jews fasting and praying, and he skips over Esther's conversion, we think, and he skipped over the king's insomnia, and he skips over Esther's intercession precisely to focus us on the unseen God who's nevertheless been omnipotently present and active in bringing it all about. Friend, listen, you say you can't see God, and then you say, that is why I'm atheistic. And to you, Esther kindly says, open your eyes. The book means to potently account for that kind of rationale. Haman could not see God either. But the unbeliever's lack of sight is not the measure of the truth. God is here. God is there. God is everywhere. And you are going to have to do with Him. And beloved, like how lovely to see his activity for us behind the scenes. It should bring us to celebrate His sovereign grace. Which brings us second to their resolve to do exactly that, to celebrate redemption and the God behind it. So, picking up in verse 26, if you look there, we see just how resolved they were and why, and we'll just begin with the why. It's very brief, and again, it's that they had experienced the grace of God. Remember, they too were sinners, fresh off of exile on account of their sin. And some, like Mordecai and Esther, had actually chosen to stay in Susa, not go back to Jerusalem, against God's word, by the way, in a state of sort of worldly compromise. They were hardened, even amongst those who were exiled. Let me just think on that for a second. Think then also on this, that as God's people, no matter how far off they were from Him, God refused to cast them off forever. As we sang, His mercy is more. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. (laughs) Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What patience, what patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Right? And they, as we, had experienced that. And so they resolved, and they obliged themselves to celebrate it. And I'll just note all the details of their commitment for us here first. As we've seen, the theme was redemption by grace with a hanged enemy at its heart. And it was next revivalistic in nature. It was meant to recall what God had done for them and in so doing, sort of stoke the flames of faith and hope and love and mission as a people. And more we saw that it was was biblically inclusive, right? It involved their children. 
It invited all the world to be a part themselves of God's people and plan of redemption that shadowed in the celebration of Purim. And to see their further convictions in verses 27 and 28, how they said they would keep it without fail according to the written word and with a keen eye to any sort of disuse, no matter the day or age or generation. Right? The progress of history was not going to dictate to the God of history. They wouldn't allow cultural shifts to regulate and so poison the otherwise pure stream of God's ancient and inscripturated revelation. What those nearest the real events did, those that followed were to trust and do likewise. And all this, as I'm sure you guessed, comes to us as those who experienced not the shadows of redemption, but the substance of it. Right? We don't celebrate Purim. I don't think. Had anyone ever heard of Purim before? Esther? Why don't we do that? Same reason we don't celebrate Passover. I don't think. And it's not because most, if not all of us, are ethnically Jewish. It's because we are spiritually Jewish. That is, we're in Christ. We're Christians. We're heirs of the promise. Christ has come. The Passover lamb has been slain. The reversal shadowed by Purim has been accomplished. The crucified and risen Jesus has fulfilled all of it. And so all the feasts have now been recast in a celebration that itself is one day going to be recast in the marriage supper of the Lamb in the new creation. But for now, this is that feast. This is that celebration. And as such, it draws their resolves into our setting. Christ may have changed the look of it insofar as He has put a, a face on it, insofar as He has put His grace to it, insofar as He has elevated it by fulfilling it, but He's hardly changed the principles to guide us in it. And so let's just run it back now. Let's just run it back. We gather to celebrate redemption by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That is the sum, the goal, and the purpose of what we're doing here. If we miss that, we've injuriously missed the mark. So let's not miss that. But because of our love for Christ, let's obligate ourselves in pursuit of reviving joy to keep this gathering and to keep it rich with the truth of the gospel. Let's be a people who, God willing, will not miss this gathering for the world. A people who, as best we can, keep it, as it says in the text, without fail. And let's be a people then who let the Word of God lead the worship. Who let the Word of God lead us. Who let the Word of God be the legacy of this church. Why, why do these times fall into so much disuse. And they do. It's very simple. They fall into disuse because the center has changed. The center has shifted. The, the sovereign is replaced in corporate worship. God's ordained worship becomes 
It becomes man-centered instead of God-centered. It becomes me-centered instead of God-centered. We put the word aside and let people and preferences and pragmatism and what's popular in our world today begin to set the agenda and run the show and take all the glory. A question. Shouldn't we believe that God knows best how He delights to be worshipped? And has He not revealed that? Far more than we tend to account for in His Word? And won't we then be regulated by God's Word, trusting that that will be for our joy? In keeping the worship of God in Christ, let's not do less or otherwise than these folks did in keeping Purine. Let's not just attend. Please, God, help us not just to attend, but to attend well to this gathering. From the heart, according to all that is written. And while we're at it, let's commit ourselves to immersing our children and any who will in what we pray is a gospel culture. Right? Let's be parents and friends of parents who regularly and graciously remind our kids of what God has done to save us from our sins and go on then to offer that salvation to our kids and earnestly disciple them in it. And let's be a people, as God grants, of many peoples, ethnically, economically, and what have you, but with one all-uniting bond, the grace of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of His salvation. I do pray, above all, that's what we all get here and grow in and celebrate together from week to week. Well, I've got to move on. So, let's come again to recognize the Redeemers in the story and the God behind them, picking up in verse 29. And perhaps you're wondering, why do that? We, we already know who they are. And honestly, I, I would just say, because the Holy Spirit wants us to, he wants us to focus again on Mordecai and Esther, and so there must be a good reason, and I think it's twofold. It's to show us what God's grace can make of His people and what we're then to make of our lives for His sake and for the sake of His people. So once more, in Mordecai and Esther, we're able to enter into a decade's worth of life and witness the work of God in them. Remember, at the beginning of the story, they were both indistinct participants in the pagan world around them. By the end of the story, they're both ambassadors for God's peace to His people. Wow. And in between those poles, there's a God. There's a God, as Paul says, working in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We are perhaps most faithless when we are convinced that we are what we are or that another is what they are or that one is too far gone for any kind of significant change that God lacks the power to achieve His purpose with us. We do know He's raised us and saved us to make us like Jesus, don't we? Listen, we are the saddest souls when we think that we are static and stationary ones. That we can't learn, 
We can't grow. We can't progress. I can't overcome this sin. We can't move near to Christ, toward godly stability, into dearer fellowship with the truth. And you know, really, really from, from one biblical angle, that's true. We can't do any of those things in and of ourselves. But what I'm trying to get at here, what we've seen in Esther, is that God can. At first, remember, these two were scandalously astray. But by and by, God has worked in their hearts, God has worked in their lives, and they have changed. They've changed. However far they were from Him, He was never far from them. God is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. And so He went after them. And by providence, He awakened them to Him. He provoked them to faithfulness. He inclined them to prayer. We've seen this along the way. He readied them even to die for His sake. He made them risk takers for His people. He drew them up into a consistent portrait of Christ. Haven't we seen it so frequently? And this was not by their willpower alone. It was by the power of grace. At the end of the story, Mordecai and Esther are, in all practicality, the governors of the world. Not by blackmail. Not by cutting corners. Not by doing the dirty work. But by lifting up their hearts to God. And putting their heads down for God. And living openly and happily as part of God's people. Now, that is not to say that you do the same thing and that you're going to be president one day of the United States of America. But it is to say that God is faithful to honor and use faithfulness. He blesses the obedience that diffuses the aroma of Christ in the world. And that may mean the presidency, Far more likely, not a lesser, but a different kind of regalia, like a crown of thorns on the way to a crown of life. It looks like following our king as a stay-at-home mom. It looks like following our king as a student. It looks like following our king as a teacher, maybe a guidance counselor. It looks like following our king as an engineer. It looks like following our king as a chemist. It looks like following our king as a cryptologist. Yes, there is one of those in the midst of us. It looks like following our king as a missionary, as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a member of this church, as a deacon, as a pastor. But whatever, in all of those things, our priority is to be the service of Jesus and His people. At the end of the day, this is what God means to do in us. See that having risen to such heights, having risen to such prominence in the story, they did not forget their main purpose in the end. But instead, they leveraged their office for the glory of God, the rehearsing of His redemption, Purim, and the peace of His people. And they were not clergy. 
They worked in government of all places as servants of God. Is that what we are in the Kim Lab? Is that what we are around the tables in our homes? Is that what we are in public and in private? Do we recall what we are first and foremost? I mean, do we do do our best at what we do? And do we realize our best cannot ever be Christless? Are we using our providential platforms for the purposes of God, the telling of His truth, and the peace of His people in it? Are we living confirmations of the gospel of grace? God has saved us to be as Christ was. Where are we in the process? How far have we come? Now listen, don't look at this week, you'll be discouraged. Look out from the first. Look out from when you first believed upon Christ. And see the activity of His grace in you. John Newton's words are encouraging here, who said, quote, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. By God's grace, I am what I am. Take heart in that. And take heart in this too, in the verse 31. Do you see how they tied the feast of Purim to the fast that preceded it? I think the idea is that whether feasting or fasting both imply felt need before God. The understanding that we need help and the hope that believes God is willing and able to meet it and that indeed He loves to meet it. Beloved, how do we come? How do we come to this gathering? In In what mindset? I'm going to go in and come out and sing a few songs and just leave same as always. If so, perhaps that's why you do come in and go out and are not changed. Do we think we've already arrived? Do we think we're spiritually rich enough already? That we have no wants in Christ? That we have no needs in Christ? Or worse, do we, do we have a sense of those things, but we just tell ourselves, uh, at the end of the day, I just don't think He can do anything about it. Do we gather here to feast on a risen King as though He were a dead man? Powerless. Without authority. Without love for us. Mordecai was a sleazy suit of a man. All knotted up in worldly ambition. Doing what it took to fit in and avoid the disadvantages of faith. And Esther, Esther was the winner of a sex contest. Do you think they might have shown up this morning with some spiritual baggage? with some doubts about God's ability and willingness to forgive them and help them and sanctify them. Beloved, the book of Esther says, bring it on! 
And Jesus does too. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you what? Rest. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful to give the grace we need for increasing godliness. So, let's come to Him as we close the book. Let's end by rejoicing in the Redeemer and the God behind Him. We arrive at chapter 10, and though it is short on verses, it is long on irony. The first being that in a book with so much change, Ahasuerus, king heart attack, has remained the same. Dead in the grave of selfish ambition. You see there, such a strange note in verse 1. Impose some taxes on the land. (laughs) Holy Spirit, what's going on there? I think it's just, he's still all about his kingdom. He suffered some losses in in all the, the, the gain of God's people, and so he needs to reclaim some of that loss. He's still all about his kingdom. He's still about his profit. He's about minimizing his losses and the gains of God's people. Despite having a front row seat to the story of redemption, he's not one of the redeemed. Dear friend, don't let your front row seat this morning go to waste. Don't let what you've heard of judgment and redemption slide past without repentance and faith in Christ. What a shame. Anyone else burdened for Ahasuerus? What a shame. But I fear this king died against God's kingdom. May your end be different than his. May you enter God's kingdom right now by believing in Jesus. Which leads to another irony here. And it's that front and center, I love this bit, in a book chronicling all of Ahasuerus' might, in a book chronicling all the might of all the Medo-Persian kings, is the tale of God's providential intervention and takeover. Beloved, no kingdom on earth is above the kingdom of heaven. No human government is above God's governance. And here, what humor to show it. You remember how after Vashti's noble insubordination in chapter 1, all the king's men, right? They're all in an uproar. Absolutely horrified at what she had done. All the wives of the world are going to smash their husbands on the head with a frying pan when they don't like what they have to say. So they sent out a decree to every home that men were to rule their homes and wives were to like it. They feared losing the freedom to abuse the authority they had. And God says, joke's on you. Who gives the final command in the book of Esther? One, by the way, that constrains the whole known world, minus Greece, because they hadn't conquered Greece, to live tolerantly with the redeemed. Who is it? It's Esther. (laughs) The king's own wife. Well, how God does work in ways the world fears. Ways it deems foolish. Ways it never would have imagined. Like another woman 
who was the first human to witness and say, the tomb is empty. And the world was never the same. But alas, there is one final note of irony in Esther, and it's that Mordecai the Jew, as it says in verse 3, was second in rank to the king. And perhaps we sit back and we're all amazed at that, right? From the gallows to the right hand of the king, serving for all intents and purposes as the king of the Jews. We see his popularity with his people as one who sought their welfare and spoke peace so long as he lived to every single one of them. But we know, don't we? We know that behind him, behind Mordecai, there was a king second to none. A king invisible in Esther, who as the Bible progresses, became visible in Jesus Christ. Christ was tempted, remember this, with all the kingdoms of the world. And Christ said, no. No thank you. And he said, no for the cross. He said, no, because his kingdom was not of this world. He said no because he was after the eternal welfare and peace of all his people. And so this king of the Jews went to the gallows, not of man, but of God. Where he suffered and he died and he was raised to the right hand of God. Jesus is the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. Jesus is second to nobody. Second to none. And what peace we do then have. How well it truly is with our souls. The war is over. The, the decree of death is undone. We're delivered. We're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're part of a kingdom that has no end. And so none should be more popular with us, nor should we seek the popularity of any with others more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh man. I started in John 16 talking about pregnancy. So I'll end it there talking about peace. As only Jesus can give it. Dear ones, between now and kingdom come, we will have trouble. There will be birth pangs of a new creation. But what does Jesus say at the end of John 16? He says, in the midst of all that, in me, you may have peace. And take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. <laughs> and isn't that Esther? Jesus has come and gone. We don't see him now. But he's here. And he's won. 
And so while we battle through thick and thin, along paths dark and treacherous, we can take heart. We also win. Why? Because He is always faithful. May our God be blessed for this book that's taught us that so very well. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You. We praise You. May you have all the glory. What a book. What a story. What lessons to take with us. Ultimately, we pray that by the power and mercy of the Holy Spirit, we really would take full assurance in Christ that the victory is ours. Oh, please, don't let us come in and go out without a greater love for Christ, a greater joy in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.